Let's start this morning by recapping our Tis the Season Christmas series. Two weeks ago, we started things off by looking at the history of Christmas. And in doing so, we, we reached two fundamental conclusions. First, because Christmas is distinctly an American phenomenon, as Americans, we have every liberty to embrace and enjoy these Christmas traditions, even if they have no biblical or religious significance. There is no religious significance to the Christmas tree, but as Americans, let's enjoy it. There's no biblical significance of Santa Claus, but nonetheless, we should enjoy the legend of old Saint Nick. But the other thing we observed in studying the history of Christmas is that though Christ's birth was merged with pagan customs to produce Christmas, it's a fact of history, the season still affords an amazing opportunity as believers for us to prioritize Jesus by teaching our kids the truth of Jesus' birth while showing practical generosity to those less fortunate and in need around us. Last week, we took the opportunity to look at the significance of Christmas. And in doing so, we reached three conclusions. First, by analyzing the claim of the virgin birth, the Bible indeed states the impossible as being factual. By examining ancient manuscripts and noting the acceptance of the doctrine of the incarnation by the early church, we can say conclusively that history validates the improbable as actual. And then finally, by discussing the biblical significance of the virgin birth, it is undeniable Christian doctrine establishes the incredible as reality. Jesus came to earth with a singular mission. That mission was to save me and you to save the world from our sin. As we mentioned, without the manger, there could have never been the cross. This morning, we're going to look at the characters of Christmas. And in way of introduction, I want to introduce you to a term. A term you might not be familiar with, but a term you nonetheless should note. The term hermeneutics. Hermeneutics can be defined as the art or science of textual interpretation. Now, in regards to the Bible and how we understand Christian doctrine, hermeneutics establishes rules, basic rules, by which we can understand and interpret the Bible, Scripture. Very simple. Fancy words, simple meaning. Now, though there are all kinds of various ways and methods that people, pastors, Bible students, theologians use to interpret Scripture, as your pastor, I want to let you know that my approach to the Bible is a very logical, systematic, orderly methodology. In essence, you can say that I follow a simplified, traditional, hermeneutical pattern. That sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? What this means is that when I approach Scripture, and you guys have witnessed this by sitting in the pews, when approaching a text, my first approach, it's very simple. I always accept a literal reading of the passage as the basis for my interpretation unless the passage indicates otherwise. If the passage doesn't tell me it's to be allegorized, you don't allegorize it. If the passage lets me know that it's speaking using like uh, uh, imaginary terms or figurative speech, well, then you can take the passage as being spoken figuratively. For example, since the virgin birth of Christ is presented by both Matthew and Luke as literal history, my, and here it comes again, hermeneutical approach leaves me with one of two options. Because I take a literal reading, I either accept the passage, accept the text as fact, or I reject it as being inaccurate. Now, sadly, there are many pastors who don't like either two options. And they often choose, sadly, to allegorize a text when the text doesn't contain allegorical references. And in doing so, they adopt a hermeneutic or a way of interpretation void of any rules. And what does this mean? 
This means that the passage can be left completely to the pastor's own interpretation. It is an interpretation without basis or foundation. If you were a fan of the show Lost, you completely understand the frustration of a story without rules. Now, the second approach that I take after the literal reading is that I begin to unpack the significance of a passage by examining the event itself from a macro perspective. Now, by looking at the story from a big picture perspective, I try to determine the one significant lesson or the main point that the author is trying to communicate through the text or through the story, through the narration. For example, last week we did this. Last week we whittled down the incarnation, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus, down to one eternal universal lesson. Jesus came to save humanity from their sins. Now finally, with a literal understanding of the text and the significant lesson established, I then wade deeper into the details and nuances of a story using what I call a micro-examination. By using a micro-approach, I hope to discover implications and applications that the text might have for my life. If you study the Bible on your own, I encourage you to take the same kind of hermeneutical pattern. Read the passage, and then just find out what the simple literal meaning uh, indicates. This is what the story is. This is what the author's communicating and the history of it. Then, from a macro perspective, try to find out what the main point is, and then dive in deeper with a micro-examination, trying to pull out implications, applications. It's a good way, a solid way, of studying the Bible. Now, because we have already reached a literal and historical understanding of Christmas, and because we've already established the overarching significance of the incarnation, this morning we're going to begin digging deeper into the text by examining the personal impact the birth of Jesus had on the main characters of Christmas. Let's begin this morning by looking at Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel Gabriel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? since I do not know a man. And Gabriel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has conceived a son in her, whole, in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible." Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judea and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And then if you fast forward to verse 56, we're told that Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her house. Now from the text provided, let's consider what we know about Mary. and the Hebrew, her name would have been Miriam. To begin with, Mary lived in obscurity. Since we have no specific mention of Mary's family, it's only logical for us to assume that she didn't descend from any kind of family wealth. Her family wasn't nobility. They didn't come with any kind of notoriety, recognizable, since we also have no mention of any of Mary's personal achievements, it also seems unlikely that there was nothing significant about Mary that would have brought her personal fame, 
or glory or celebrity. Mary was a plain Jane. To most within Nazareth and the rest of the world, Mary was a nobody. It's safe to say, if not for this particular story, this particular event, Mary would have entered and exited this planet as just another nameless stat of history. Mary lived in obscurity. We also can note that Mary grew up in a rough part of town. Located about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem, the city of Nazareth was nothing more than a glorified truck stop along the route that connected the Sea of Galilee with the Mediterranean. Because the entire town of Nazareth existed to service merchants who were making this travel, needing a place to stay, the economy of Nazareth existed of little more than a few questionable Motel 6s, one Waffle House, a liquor store, a strip club, and maybe a Kmart. Wasn't big enough for a Walmart. Historically, Nazarenes were notorious characters. They were shady. When hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth, Nathaniel says in John chapter 1, verse 46 to his brother, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He, he makes a statement doubting whether anything good could come out of Nazareth. Why? Because nothing good had ever come out of Nazareth. It was a shady place. As a resident of Nazareth, Mary would not have grown up in the lap of luxury, but instead that of poverty. There was no gated community. She was afforded no silver spoon. Mary grew up on the other side of the tracks in a neighborhood known for questionable activity. The world would have looked down on Mary. By pure association, Mary would have been considered trailer trash. The other thing we can note about Mary is that she was a virtuous woman. It's quite amazing. Aside from the obvious importance that Mary's virginity would have on the incarnation of Jesus, when you read through the text, you can't help but wonder why Luke goes to such great lengths to make sure his readers know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Mary was a virgin. You see, most would have simply assumed that Mary would have been a virgin. Now, let me explain what I mean. Since sex before marriage was forbidden according to the law of Moses, and since premarital sex was considered taboo within Jewish communities, more often than not, punishable by stoning, most of Luke's readers would have assumed that in referencing a young Jewish woman, that she would inevitably have been a virgin. But, this is what's amazing to me, after just mentioning that Mary was from Nazareth. To the readers in the first century, that assumption of innocence would have been completely removed. People at that point wouldn't have made the assumption that a woman, a young woman from Nazareth, would have been a virgin. Luke has to go to great lengths to establish this principle. The town slogan for Nazareth was probably what happens in Nazareth stays in Nazareth. Since Nazareth existed for the sole purpose of servicing the needs of men traveling from Galilee, making their way to the Mediterranean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that women were a big part of servicing these men's needs. Nazareth had a horrible reputation. So Luke goes the extra mile to make sure his readers know that Mary was not like the normal Nazarene woman. In a culture of short skirts and loose hips, Mary had chosen a totally different path. She had responded to a higher calling. She was distinct from her culture. She had resisted social pressure and had remained pure before God. This is what Luke is making sure we note. Mary was a virtuous woman. We should also mention that Mary had a glorious heritage. The angel tells Mary that her son Jesus would be great and would be called the son of the highest and the Lord God would give him, interesting, the throne of his father David. 
Luke chapter 3 provides the genealogical record of Mary. And in doing so, Luke establishes Mary as being a descendant of King David through David's son, Nathan. The bloodline that Mary would impart to her son would give Jesus a legitimate family connection to David. We should also note that Mary, she was betrothed to Joseph. A Jewish wedding consisted of three stages. There was the engagement. This was the part of the procedure where the fathers shook on it. Most marriages were prearranged. There was pros and cons to that. But most of it was an agreement made between families, made between fathers. They would, a handshake, it was a deal, money would exchange, a dowry would be posted. There was an agreement made. So the wedding, stage one, was always the engagement or the prearrangement made between the families. Then there came the betrothal. This is the stage that Mary and Joseph find themselves in. The betrothal was a legal agreement that existed between Mary and Joseph. A ceremony would take place, and Mary would make promises to Joseph, and Joseph would make promises to Mary. They would live after the betrothal in two separate places, but they were legally considered to be married after the betrothal. And then would come the marriage. You see, during the betrothal period, Joseph would go back home and would build on an extension to his father's home. This was traditional and customary. He would be preparing a house for his bride, for his wife, Mary, who was also living at home. When the time came, Joseph would come home, would come to get Mary. A feast, a seven-day feast would ensue. It would be a great celebration. They would come back. They would start their life together. Engagement, betrothal, marriage. Mary's betrothed to Joseph, which means that at this point in her life, at this point in the story, the engagement's happened. She's legally married to Joseph. She's living at home, her father's house, an estate of consistent, continual anticipation. For what? For the news that Joseph has completed their home and is coming to take her as his bride. It could happen at any moment. But something unexpected takes place. Now, though we don't know when or where this exchange between Gabriel and Mary takes place, Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel, sent with a message from God, appears to Mary with a unique declaration. Look back. The first words out of the angel's mouth to Mary. Rejoice or take joy, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Which leads us to another point concerning Mary. Her reputation had reached God. Gabriel communicates three important things to Mary. First, she's highly favored. Secondly, the Lord was with her. And thirdly, she was blessed. Because Mary found favor with God, we're told that she would be blessed among women, or literally that she would be blessed in such a way that no other woman in history had ever been blessed. It was unique. It is unquestionable from the text that Mary's heart and sensitivity towards God had brought her incredible favor with God. It's amazing to consider that unknown to the city she lived in and the world around her, Mary's reputation had reached the throne room of God. Of all of the women to have ever lived before her or to have come after her, this woman, this young, poor, virtuous woman from the podunk town of Nazareth would be given the blessed privilege of mothering the Son of God. Mary's reaction to Gabriel's announcement, it's funny to me. She says, but when she saw him, Luke tells us, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now, to me, this is comical because if an angel appeared to me with a message, the first thing I'd be pretty amazed at is that there's an angel standing in front of me 
to begin with. Like, forget about what the angel has to say. The fact that there's an angel, either in, in my bedroom or out in the field I'm working in or wherever they are, that there's an angel standing in front of me would be lots for my brain to try to like contemplate. And yet, Mary's consternation came, not in the fact that there was an angel standing there, but we're told that it came as she's trying to grasp the meaning of what the angel had to say, which tells me something else about Mary, that Mary was deeply spiritual. Now, when you consider the cultural limitations placed in Mary's way, her deep spiritual sentiment is incredible. Women were often uneducated. They were illiterate. Most of the time, their opportunity or exposure to scripture was, was restricted because most of the time it focused on the men within the synagogue and, and not the young women. I mean, Mary has a lot of things stacked against her. And yet, in this moment, an angel, the words out of the angel's mouth, all Mary can think about is, whoa, what that angel just said is heavy and deep and theological. Mary's spiritual depth, her contemplation, her knowledge demonstrates that she was a young woman passionately attuned to the things of God. There isn't a whole lot of surprise that her reputation had indeed reached the halls of heaven. As an example of Mary's spiritual understanding, I encourage you, maybe for homework, to just look in the passage that we actually skipped, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. It's called the Song of Mary. After all of these things happen, Mary erupts in song. Read through the song and just as homework, note how many deep theological concepts exist in just a few pieces of scripture. It is amazing at Mary's understanding of the Old Testament. Now, following this extended conversation with Gabriel, detailing her pregnancy, and after receiving instructions to go and visit her cousin Elizabeth, Mary summarizes the entire experience. She says, behold, this is her response, behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Which tells me that Mary had faith in God's word. Considering there was zero precedent of a virgin ever conceiving in human history before this, it's amazing that Mary had the faith to believe the supernatural would occur in her life and that she would bear the Son of God. For her to say, let it be to me according to your word. It's true. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Mary accepted God's word and humbly embraced this new, radical, unfounded direction that her life was about to take. You know, it's easy, it's very easy for us to read through this story and admire Mary's faith, but still completely miss the ramifications of what's actually happening. You got to dig into the story a little bit. You got to kind of place yourself as a fly on the, on, the, on the wall of the scene happening. Mary's faith, to me, takes on an entirely new dynamic when you think about the implications that Jesus' birth, the news, the knowledge bomb that has just been dropped on Mary, when you think about the implications that this would have on her life, her faith takes on a whole new dimension. According to Luke, Mary would spend the first three months of her pregnancy visiting Elizabeth. But following the birth of John, Luke tells us that Mary would return to Nazareth and you know what would be happening? She would now be showing the visible signs of pregnancy. Which tells me something equally amazing about Mary. Mary trusted God with her future. Let's be honest. Mary's pregnancy really complicated things. Right? I mean, she would have to return home 
pregnant, showing signs. And what would she be required to do? What, what, what would be unavoidable for, for this young woman? She would have to attempt to explain the unexplainable without trying to appear nuts. Imagine as a daughter coming home, greeted by your parents, showing signs that you're pregnant. Imagine how that would have to go down. Now you think your children have come up with some off the wall, maybe bizarre explanations to try to excuse their behavior? The dog ate my homework. Yeah, try saying, yeah, I'm pregnant, but, but, I, but I haven't done anything wrong. Like an angel appeared to me and the Holy Spirit overshadowed me. And like, like I've never known a man. This is just, my, okay, the baby's, it's God's son. <laughs> like, don't miss the obvious application implication of the story. She comes home, she's met with her parents, and her explanation for being pregnant is that God put the baby inside of her. Like, at that point, I don't even know if mom and dad can be angry. They're just sad. Like, come on, Mary. At least tell us the truth. At least be honest. What did we ever do to you? Can you imagine the, the, the hopes and dreams that her parents have had for her? She's betrothed. Can you imagine how these things would unfold and the thoughts going, where did, where did we go wrong? We thought we had just done, we thought she was such a good girl. Man, she really had us fooled. Immediately they're hacking into her email they're going on to her Facebook page. They're looking. They open up the photos on her, on her phone and they cringe. Like, what are we going to find? Everything that they thought they knew about their daughter, they now question. And don't forget, Mary's actually telling the truth. She actually hasn't done anything wrong. She's virtuous. But her parents now question everything. Think about how she would have to explain things to Joseph. Not to mention, according to the law, a woman who was caught in adultery, she could have been stoned to death. At a minimum, Mary's pregnancy, at a minimum, would result in public scorn and humiliation. Her fate rested with Joseph, her legal husband, and with God. Everything is out of Mary's control. But this is what's amazing about Mary. Even with the knowledge that Jesus' birth would turn her world upside down, throwing every future plan and every future dream into limbo, Mary still rejoiced. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Mary had counted the cost and this was her conclusion. It's a glorious conclusion. That no matter what happened moving forward, her life would be better with Jesus than without. Indeed, what faith. Now let's look at our other main character. Let's look at Joseph. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning with verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. And so Matthew's summarizing what Luke's already expounded upon. But then we're told that Joseph, her husband, as a just man, not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. And while he's contemplating, while he's thinking about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, 
and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took to him his wife, and he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. It's easy. It's very easy. Especially since both stories come from two different books of the Bible. And you're trying to piece it together in like a harmony of the Gospels. It's very easy to overlook an important detail of our story. While all of this is happening with Mary, the entire story we just looked at, while all of this is happening, Joseph is 100% oblivious. He has no knowledge that any of this is happening with Mary. He's unaware for three months of anything that had been happening with Mary. Since the betrothal, Joseph has been busily preparing a home for his wife. His days are filled from sunup to sundown with labor. His nights enraptured with anticipation. His thoughts are filled with the hopes and the dreams of the wonderful life that he's going to share with Mary. Their kids, the memories they'll make in their home. Joseph cannot wait for the day where he drives in the last nail and he can go and get his bride. Now the news that Mary had gone to care for Elizabeth during Elizabeth's final trimester That would have caused no alarm. That was normal. It was customary. Family taking care of family. But following the news that Mary had returned home, a rumor begins to circulate through Nazareth. Imagine if you're Joseph getting the news that your betrothed wife has been knocked up. How horrible. Imagine. Imagine. The news is like a bomb exploding in your brain. In one moment, like that, every future hope, dream, plan, idea just evaporates. All of this labor, this home, these plans, ruined. Joseph's heart is filled with pain. His, ho- his thoughts begin to race. His imagination runs wild. I know it wasn't me. I wonder who it was. And you can imagine him thinking, I know that kid down the street, former boyfriend, I wonder. I mean, his thoughts are running wild. His imagination is crazy. Put yourself into his sandals. He is shocked. He is in complete and total disbelief. Imagine the scene. He hears the rumor. His buddies have been debating who's going to sit down and break the news to him. I mean, who wants to be that friend? He rushes to Mary's house. Is it true? What's happening? Imagine how the scene would unfold. And the tears, no doubt, running down Mary's face, the tears running down Joseph's face. Imagine their conversation. Mary, what did I do wrong? Did you not love me? Did you not care for me? What about the promises that you made to me? And don't forget, there had already been promises made. You're a liar, Mary. Why did you do this? Why didn't you wait? Who was it? And and imagine, I mean, once again, poor Mary. There's Mary. Joseph, I love you. My love for you hasn't changed. I'm still pure. I've I've been holding on to this to give this to you, my virginity to you. I've made these promises and I haven't broken them. And Joseph is in disbelief and anger. How can you say that? Look at you. Ha! Joseph, I've never known another man and I'm saving myself for you. 
this, it's God's baby. <laughs> I mean, poor Mary and poor Joseph. Complicated. Now, Joseph, his initial emotions subside, and he's left with a decision. Now, I'm of the opinion that the most logical conclusion that Joseph can reach is that Mary has just lost grip on reality. Here she is putting forth this argument. She's maintaining her innocence. She's providing this explanation. She seems genuine. She seems sincere. She passes the polygraph. So either that happened or she's just gone crazy. She's just lost grip on reality. Though it would have been well within Joseph's right to have had Mary, his legal wife, dragged into the town square and stoned to death. Joseph's thinking to himself, how, how can I do that to a crazy person? I think that there's a point in this where, where Joseph's anger and his hurt just kind of morph into a sorrow. He just feels bad for her. She's lost it. Something's happened. She's gone crazy. We're told that Joseph is leaning towards putting her away secretly. Now, what this means in the literal language is that Joseph is contemplating filing for divorce. To put her away is not like, you know, to put her feet in concrete boots and throw her off the bridge. That's not what's happening. What he's saying is, is I'm just, well, I'll let her be someone else's problem, and I'm just going to separate. I'm just going to divorce, which, which in so many ways seems reasonable. But we're told that as he's contemplating these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And what happens? The angel confirms Mary's story. Imagine Joseph waking up, like the radical swings of emotions that are happening within Joseph. Here he is, skepticism turns to wonderment. Despair morphs into an excitement. Pain, deep pain, betrayal becomes, in a weird way, relief. Matthew continues by telling us that then Joseph, when he's aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. He did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. As with Mary, it's easy to see Joseph's obvious faith. God clearly spoke to him. And as crazy as it had seemed, Mary... Mary had told him the truth, and she was indeed pregnant with the Son of God. Joseph, and you should note this, not only believed God's word, but he was faithful to obey God's word. As Mary's husband, Joseph, he, there's a sense of honor, a sense of, of, of character and integrity. Joseph has been chosen to be God's stepdad. What an honor. Like Mary, Joseph's faith, though, takes on a whole new dynamic when you now consider the implications Jesus' birth would have on his life. Joseph has adamantly maintained that the baby's not his. That's kind of a fact. It's on the record. He's being minded to put, him, put her away secretly or divorce her. But then, and one night, he wakes up and he decides that no, he's now going to take her as his wife. If people thought Mary had lost her mind, imagine how Joseph would have to explain his reasoning to his buddies or to his parents. Dad, in all seriousness, like this I had a dream and an angel appeared and no, that's really the son of God. Like people thought Mary was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And now they think Joseph has also drank the Kool-Aid. Like what's happening with these people? This is what's amazing to me about Joseph. Even with the knowledge, Jesus's birth would turn his world upside down and throw his future into limbo. 
Joseph still chose obedience. As with Mary, Joseph, he counted the costs and he concluded that his life would be far better with Jesus than without. A just man indeed with incredible faith. Now, before we conclude, we should ask, why, why include Joseph in the story of Jesus' birth in the first place? I don't know if you've ever considered this. As I'm reading through the story, I kind of scratch my head because really, according to the Old Testament, God's plan here, this incredible mission impossible, it called for a virgin to conceive. But never once in the Old Testament are we ever led to believe a stepdad was needed to complete the story. Have you ever thought, like, why in the world do we need Joseph? Like, why would God pick a virgin betrothed to another man? Well, let me provide for you two explanations. First, though Jesus would possess a direct bloodline to King David through Mary's lineage, the right to the throne was something that could only be handed down through your father. Now, in the genealogy of Joseph, which we have in Matthew chapter 1, we discover, as with Mary, that Joseph was also a direct descendant of King David. Mary descended through David's son, Nathan. Joseph descended through David's son, Solomon. As Joseph, as his stepson, Jesus would therefore be able to claim a birthright to the throne. That's the first reason that Joseph's included. Secondly, it was also apparently important, and this is, as a dad, this just kind of ups the ante for fatherhood. Because it was apparently important for God, sending his only begotten son into the world. It was important for God that Jesus, that his son, would grow up with a male role model. It's, it's powerful to me. Joseph would not only have the job of raising Jesus as his own, of protecting Jesus as his own, but as the stepdad of God, he would serve, Joseph would serve a very strategic, influential role in teaching Jesus how to be a man. Fathers, you have the same responsibility. Now in conclusion, through a micro-examination of the personal impact the birth of Jesus had on the lives of Mary and Joseph. I want to conclude here with four quick observations that we can kind of take with us this morning. First, <clears throat> Jesus' involvement in our lives is also directly connected to our faith in God's Word. God. He did not choose Mary and Joseph because they came from wealth. He didn't choose them because their families were families of power, prestige, or notoriety. God didn't care that, that they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. God didn't care that they were poor. It didn't matter to God that from the world's perspective, they were a nobody. God chose Mary and Joseph and he included them in the story of his son for one reason. There was one prerequisite. They were both willing to respond to God's word and faith. They both accepted God's word, believed in God's word, and then acted upon God's word, trusting that God had their future in his hands. Though maybe in the world's eyes, you are also a nobody. Th that if aside from Jesus, you would enter and exit this world as a nameless stat of history. Understand, God is more than willing. As a matter of fact, he's excited to include you into his story. God is aware of what's happening in your life, your reputation, Hey, it might be reverberating around the throne room of heaven. Like Mary and Joseph, God is simply looking for people, for men and women, normal people, 
who will hear, believe, and respond to his word in faith. Secondly, Jesus' involvement in our lives, well, it will also be misunderstood by the world around us. Maybe some of you have also fallen prey to the same thing, the same trouble, the same skepticism that Mary and Joseph have faced. When they tried to explain what God had revealed to them and was doing in them, how were they met? By their family and their friends and their society? They were met with doubt, scorn, disbelief. To the onlooker, Jesus' involvement in their lives, it seemed illogical, unreasonable, and insane. For the rest of their lives, they'd never escape this. There would always be people who would doubt their story and mock their claim. But it should also be mentioned that though the world might have rejected their story, though from the world they might have been outcasts, God would not leave them without support, without friends. Think about it. It's a detail we overlooked for an important reason. Mary wasn't sent to Elizabeth in an attempt to prolong the discovery of her pregnancy. I mean, she wasn't going to show for three months anyway. Like, that's not why Mary had been sent to Elizabeth. Mary had been sent to Elizabeth because God knew that Mary's baby faith, though a radical faith and an awesome faith, Mary's baby faith, this work that Jesus had started in her life, this work that was still in its infancy, what did it need? It needed affirmation and it needed encouragement. Mary, Mary needed a friend. And God provided exactly the kind of friend she needed, one who was going through a supernatural work of God in her own right. When it comes to God's work in your life, Jesus' involvement in your life, though you can't expect, and you should, the world to doubt you, oppose you, make fun of you, though you should expect the world to just not get it, always know that God will provide friends who will encourage you in your time of need. You'll look around the room. That's why we have a church family. Thirdly, Jesus' involvement in our lives, it doesn't make life easier. That's important. I know, I know that might sound like a thanks for the Christmas exhortations act, but it's true. It's something you can't skip by looking at the story. Practically speaking, right from the beginning, Jesus made Mary and Joseph's lives not smooth sailing, not easier, but much more complicated. Not only would they have to deal with the scandal surrounding Jesus' birth initially and then for the years to come, but please note practically, their lives got more complicated. A trip to Bethlehem, nine months pregnant, an assassination attempt launched by an evil king, a flight to Egypt under the cover of darkness. These were all situations Mary and Joseph would have to navigate directly because of Jesus. Understand, involving Jesus in your life, it won't provide immunity or escape from the struggles of life. As a matter of fact, our text this morning seems to build the case that involving Jesus will actually make your life a bit more complicated. But this leads us to our fourth point. Jesus' involvement in our lives provide an incredible life. Maybe a complicated life, but still an incredible one. Scripture seems to indicate, our story seems to indicate, that Mary and Joseph were not forced participants in the Christmas story. Now, though it didn't happen, it's within reason to conclude that Mary, she could have reacted differently to Gabriel, she could have said, whoa, 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 back off, Gabe. Not something I'm interested in. Feel pretty good that, uh, you know, God has noticed and I'm highly favored. Can the blessing come maybe in a, in a different way? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm kind of cool with what I've got going on. Kind of like my friends. I like my scene. I like what I'm doing. Now, Mary didn't do that, but it's within reason to think that she could have. Joseph. 
Joseph, even waking up from the dream, did that automatically, automatically mean he was forced into marrying Mary? No. He could have concluded that this was just not the life he wanted. He could have accepted, okay, okay, I get it, Mary. You were telling me the truth, but this is your burden. Like, this is your thing. Like, you can choose the life you want. That's fine. Go for it. But you know what? Like, time out. This is just not what, what I'm signing up for. Joseph could have concluded this, and yet they both, in both instances, what did we mention? They counted the cost. They knew what was at stake. They knew what their lives would look like after this. They knew it. They didn't enter this blindly. They understood how complicated this would be, but they counted the cost and they reached this conclusion that their lives would be better with Jesus than they would have been without. As glorious as maybe their future plans had been without Jesus, they're contemplating what their future plans would look like with Jesus, and they say, absolutely. How rewarding. Think about what their lives would have looked like if they had declined. It probably would have been less complicated. Their lives probably would have been very simple, but we would have never known about them. Jesus afforded them the opportunity to be a part of a story that we still admire 2,000 years after the fact. A story which, by the way, you can be a part of as well. Jesus' involvement in your life, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to make your life more complicated. It might be easier for you to compromise on a few morals at work but because of Jesus' involvement in your life, you can't do that with a clean conscience. And as a result, what happens? Well, it might be more complicated. The world provides an easy way out, a less complicated way. But with Jesus and standards and integrity and character, sometimes we have to choose a harder path. The way of the world is described in the Bible as the wide path. But the, the road with Jesus is the narrow path. It's more difficult. Will Jesus make your life more complicated? Sure. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. But will his involvement in your life make life more rewarding, more fascinating, more glorious, more divine? Without a doubt. This morning, God is speaking to you, just as he did to Mary and Joseph, through his word, inviting you to be involved in the story of his son. The question is, will you accept his invitation and faith? Will your faith yield obedience, trusting that God is in control? This morning, will you include yourself in his story? Let's pray.